Chapter Sixteen of the Mystery of Clumber. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mystery of Clumber by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Sixteen At the Hole of Cree. It was dark enough when we started to make it no easy matter to find our way across the moors, but as we advanced it grew lighter and lighter, until by the time we reached Fullerton's cabin it was broad daylight. Early as it was, he was up and about, for the Wigtown peasants are an early rising race. We explained our mission to him in as few words as possible, and having made his bargain, what Scott ever neglected that preliminary, he agreed not only to let us have the use of his dog, but to come with us himself. Mordaunt, in his desire for privacy, would have demurred at this arrangement, but I pointed out to him that we had no idea what was in store for us, and the addition of a strong, able-bodied man to our party might prove to be of the utmost consequence. Again, the dog was less likely to give us trouble if we had its master to control it. My arguments carried the day, and the biped accompanied us as well as his four-footed companion. There was some little similarity between the two, for the man was a towsy-headed fellow with a great mop of yellow hair and a straggling beard, while the dog was of the long-haired, unkempt breed, looking like an animated bundle of oakum. All the way to the hall its owner kept retailing instances of the creature's sagacity and powers of scent, which, according to his account, were little less than miraculous. His anecdotes had a poor audience, I fear, for my mind was filled with the strange story which I had been reading, while Mordaunt strode on with wild eyes and feverish cheeks, without a thought for anything but the problem which we had to solve. Again and again, as we topped an eminence, I saw him look eagerly round him in the faint hope of seeing some trace of the absentee, but over the whole expanse of moorland there was no sign of movement or of life. All was dead and silent and deserted. Our visit to the hall was a very brief one, for every minute now was of importance. Mordaunt rushed in and emerged with an old coat of his father's, which he handed to Fullerton, who held it out to the dog. The intelligent brute sniffed at it all over, then ran whining a little way down the avenue, came back to sniff the coat again, and finally, elevating its stump of a tail in triumph, uttered a succession of sharp yelps to show that it was satisfied that it had struck the trail. Its owner tied a long cord to its collar to prevent it from going too fast for us, and we all set off upon our search, the dog tugging and straining at its leash in its excitement as it followed in the general's footsteps. Our way lay for a couple of hundred yards along the high road, and then passed through a gap in the hedge and on to the moor, across which we were led in a bee-line to the northward. The sun had by this time risen above the horizon, and the whole countryside looked so fresh and sweet from the blue sparkling sea to the purple mountains that it was difficult to realize how weird and uncanny was the enterprise upon which we were engaged. The scent must have laid struggling upon the ground, for the dog never hesitated nor stopped, dragging its master along at a pace which rendered conversation impossible. At one place, in crossing a small stream, 
we seemed to get off the trail for a few minutes but our keen-nosed ally soon picked it up on the other side and followed it over the trackless moor whining and yelping all the time in its eagerness had we not all three been fleet of foot and long of wind we could not have persisted in the continuous rapid journey over the roughest of ground with the heather often well nigh up to our waists for my own part i have no idea now looking back what goal it was i expected to reach at the end of our pursuit i can remember that my mind was full of the vaguest and most varying speculations could it be that the three buddhists had had a craft in readiness off the coast and had embarked with their prisoners for the east the direction of their track seemed at first to favour this supposition for it lay in the line of the upper end of the bay but it ended by branching off and striking directly inland clearly the ocean was not to be our terminus by ten o'clock we had walked close upon twelve miles and were compelled to call a halt for a few minutes to recover our breath for the last mile or two we had been breasting the long wearying slope of the wigtown hills from the summit of this range which is nowhere more than a thousand feet in height we could see looking northward such a scene of bleakness and desolation as can hardly be matched in any country right away to the horizon stretched the broad expanse of mud and of water mingled and mixed together in the wildest chaos like a portion of some world in the process of formation here and there on the dun-coloured surface of this great marsh there had burst out patches of sickly yellow reeds and of livid greenish scum which only served to heighten and intensify the gloomy effect of the dull melancholy expanse on the side nearest to us some abandoned peat cuttings showed that ubiquitous man had been at work there but beyond these few petty scars there was no sign anywhere of human life not even a crow nor a seagull flapped its way over that hideous desert this is the great bog of cree it is a salt-water marsh formed by an inroad of the sea and so intersected is it with dangerous swamps and treacherous pitfalls of liquid mud that no man would venture through it unless he had the guidance of one of the few peasants who retain the secret of its paths as we approached the fringe of rushes which marked its border a foul dank smell rose up from the stagnant wilderness as from impure water and decaying vegetation an earthy noisome smell which poisoned the fresh upland air so forbidding and gloomy was the aspect of the place that our stout crofter hesitated and it was all that we could do to persuade him to proceed our lurcher however not being subject to the delicate impressions of our higher organization still ran yelping along with its nose on the ground and every fibre of its body quivering with excitement and eagerness there was no difficulty about picking our way through the morass for wherever the five could go we three could follow if we could have had any doubts as to our dog's guidance they would all have been removed now for in the soft black oozing soil we could distinctly trace the tracks of the whole party from these we could see that they had walked abreast and furthermore that each was about equidistant from the other clearly then no physical force had been used in taking the general and his companion along the compulsion had been 
psychical, and not material. Once within the swamp we had to be careful not to deviate from the narrow track which offered a firm foothold. On each side lay shallow sheets of stagnant water, overlying a treacherous bottom of semi-fluid mud, which rose above the surface here and there in moist, sweltering banks, mottled over with occasional patches of unhealthy vegetation. Great purple and yellow fungi had broken out in a dense eruption, as though nature was afflicted with a foul disease which manifested itself by this crop of plague spots. Here and there, dark, crab-like creatures scuttled across our path, and hideous, flesh-coloured worms wriggled and writhed amid the sickly reeds. Swarms of buzzing, piping insects rose up at every step, and formed a dense cloud round our heads, settling on our hands and faces, and inoculating us with their filthy venom. Never had I ventured into so pestilent and forbidden a place. Mordant Heatherstone strode on, however, with a set purpose upon his swarthy brow, and we could but follow him, determined to stand by him to the end of the adventure. As we advanced, the path grew narrower and narrower, until, as we saw by the tracks, our predecessors had been compelled to walk in single file. Fullerton was leading us with the dog, Mordant behind him, while I brought up the rear. The peasant had been sulky and surly for a little time back, hardly answering when spoken to, but now he stopped short and positively refused to go a step further. "'He's no canny,' he said. "'Beside, uh, I ken where he will lead us to.' "'Where then?' I asked. "'Tell a hole or cree,' he answered. "'He's no far from here, I'm thinking.' "'The hole of cree? What is that, then?' Oh, it's, "'It's a great muckle hole in the ground "'that gangs of don't so deep "'that nobody could ever reach the bottom.' Indeed, there are folk what says I got the door leading into the bottomless pit itself. You have been there, then? I asked. Been there? He cried. What I be doing a hole of cray? Oh, I never been there, or any other man in his senses. How do you know about it then? My great grandfather have been there. That's all I can. Fullerton answered. He was found one Saturday night, and he went for a bet. He didn't like to talk about it afterwards, and he wouldn't tell her what befell him, but he was I feared of the very name. He's the first Fullerton that's been at the whole decree, and he'll be the last for me. If you take my advice, you'll just get a matter up and go name again. For it ne'er good to be gold to this place. We shall go on with you or without you, Mordant answered. Let us have your dog and we can pick you up on our way back. Eh, eh, he cried. I don't know him a dog scared with bugles and running down all nick as if he were a hare. The dog shall bide with me. The dog shall go with us, said my companion with his eyes blazing. We have no time to argue with you. 
Here's a five-pound note. Let us have the dog, or by heaven I shall take it by force and throw you in the bog if you hinder us. I could realize the Heatherstone of forty years ago when I saw the fierce and sudden wrath which lit up the features of his son. Either the bribe or the threat had the desired effect, for the fellow grabbed at the money with one hand, while with the other he surrendered the leash which held the lurcher. Leaving him to retrace his steps, we continued to make our way into the utmost recesses of the great swamp. The tortuous path grew less and less defined as we proceeded, and was even covered in places with water. But the increasing excitement of the hound, and the sight of the deep footmarks in the mud, stimulated us to push on. At last, after struggling through a grove of high bulrushes, we came to a spot the gloomy horror of which might have furnished Dante with a fresh terror for his inferno. The whole bog in this place appeared to have sunk in, forming a great funnel-shaped depression, which terminated in the centre in a circular rift or opening about forty feet in diameter. It was a whirlpool, a perfect maelstrom of mud, sloping down on every side to this silent and awful chasm. Clearly, this was the spot which, under the name of the Hole of Cree, bore such a sinister reputation among the rustics. I could not wonder at its impressing their imagination, for a more weird or gloomy scene, or one more worthy of the avenue which led to it, could not be conceived. The steps passed down the declivity which surrounded the abyss, and we followed them with a sinking feeling in our hearts, as we realized that this was the end of our search. A little way from the downward path was the return trail made by the feet of those who had come back from the chasm's edge. Our eyes fell upon these tracks at the same moment, and we each gave a cry of horror and stood gazing speechlessly at them, for there... In the blurred footmarks the whole drama was revealed. Five had gone down, but only three had returned. None shall know the details of that strange tragedy. There was no mark of struggle nor sign of attempt at escape. We knelt at the edge of the hole and endeavoured to pierce the unfathomable gloom which shrouded it. A faint, sickly exhalation seemed to rise from its depths, and there was a distant hurrying, clattering sound as of waters in the bowels of the earth. A great stone lay embedded in the mud, and this I hurled over, but we never heard thud or splash to show that it had reached the bottom. As we hung over the noisome chasm, a sound did at last rise to our ears out of its murky depths. High, clear, and throbbing, it tinkled for an instant out of the abyss, to be succeeded by the same deadly stillness which had preceded it. I do not wish to appear superstitious, or to put down to extraordinary causes that which may have a natural explanation. That one keen note may have been some strange water sound produced far down in the bowels of the earth. It may have been that, or it may have been that sinister bell of which I had heard so much. Be this as it may, it was the only sign that rose to us from the last terrible resting place of the two who had paid the debt which had so long been owing. We joined our voices in a call with the unreasoning obstinacy with which men will cling to hope, 
but no answer came back to us save a hollow moaning from the depths beneath footsore and heart-sick we retraced our steps and climbed the slimy slope once more what shall we do mordaunt i asked in a subdued voice we can but pray that their souls may rest in peace young heatherstone looked at me with flashing eyes this may be all according to occult laws he cried but we shall see what the laws of england have to say upon it i suppose a chaler may be hanged as well as any other man it may not be too late yet to run them down here good dog good dog here he pulled the hound over and set it on the track of the three men the creature sniffed at it once or twice and then falling down upon its stomach with bristling hair and protruding tongue it lay shivering and trembling a very embodiment of canine terror you see i said it is no use contending against those who have powers at their command to which we cannot even give a name there is nothing for it but to accept the inevitable and to hope that these poor men may meet with some compensation in another world for all that they have suffered in this and be free from all devilish religions and their murderous worshippers mordaunt cried furiously justice compelled me to acknowledge in my own heart that the murderous spirit had been set on foot by the christian before it was taken up by the buddhists but i forbore to remark upon it for fear of irritating my companion for a long time i could not draw him away from the scene of his father's death but at last by repeated arguments and reasonings i succeeded in making him realize how useless and unprofitable any further efforts on our part must necessarily prove and in inducing him to return with me to clumber oh the wearisome tedious journey it had seemed long enough when we had some slight flicker of hope or at least of expectation before us but now that our worst fears were fulfilled it appeared interminable we picked up our peasant guide at the outskirts of the marsh and having restored his dog we left him find his own way home without telling him anything of the results of our expedition we ourselves plodded all day over the moors with heavy feet and heavier hearts until we saw the ill omened tower of clumber and at last as the sun was setting found ourselves once more beneath its roof there is no need for me to enter into further details nor to describe the grief which our tidings conveyed to mother and to daughter their long expectation of some calamity was not sufficient to prepare them for the terrible reality for weeks my poor gabrielle hovered between life and death and though she came round at last thanks to the nursing of my sister and the professional skill of dr john easterling she has never to this day entirely recovered her former vigour mordaunt too suffered much for some time and it was only after our removal to edinburgh that he rallied from the shock which he had undergone as to poor mrs heatherstone neither medical attention nor change of air can ever have a permanent effect upon her slowly and surely but very placidly she has declined in health and strength until it is evident that in a very few weeks at the most she will have rejoined her husband and restored to him the one thing which he must have grudged to leave behind 
the laird of Branksome came home from Italy, restored in health, with the result that we were compelled to return once more to Edinburgh. The change was agreeable to us, for recent events had cast a cloud over our country life, and had surrounded us with unpleasant associations. Besides, a highly honourable and remunerative appointment in connection with the university library had become vacant, and had, through the kindness of the late Sir Alexander Grant, been offered to my father, who, as may be imagined, lost no time in accepting so congenial a post. In this way we came back to Edinburgh very much more important people than we left it, and with no further reason to be uneasy about the details of housekeeping. But in truth, the whole household had been dissolved, for I have been married for some months to my dear Gabrielle, and Esther is to become Mrs. Heatherstone upon the twenty-third of the month. If she makes him as good a wife as his sister has made me, we may both set ourselves down as fortunate men. These mere domestic episodes are, as I have already explained, introduced only because I cannot avoid alluding to them. My object in drawing up this statement and publishing the evidence which corroborates it was certainly not to parade my private affairs before the public, but to leave on record an authentic narrative of a most remarkable series of events. This I have endeavoured to do in a methodical a manner as possible, exaggerating nothing and suppressing nothing. The reader has now the evidence before him, and can form his own opinions, unaided by me, as to the causes of the disappearance and death of Rufus Smith, and of John Berthier Heatherstone, V.C. C.B. There is only one point which is still dark to me. Why the chillers of Gulab Shah should have removed their victims to the desolate hole of Cree, instead of taking their lives at Clomber, is, I confess, a mystery to me. In dealing with occult laws, however, we must allow for our own complete ignorance of the subject. Did we know more, we might see that there was some analogy between the foul bog and the sacrilege which had been committed, and that their ritual and customs demanded that just such a death was the one appropriate to the crime. On this point I should be sorry to be dogmatic, but at least we must allow that the Buddhist priests must have had some very good cause for the course of action which they so deliberately carried out. Months afterwards I saw a short paragraph in the Star of India, announcing that three eminent Buddhists, Lal Humi, Baudar Khan, and Ram Singh, had just returned in the steamship Deccan from a short trip to Europe. The next item was devoted to an account of the life and services of Major General Heatherstone, quote, who has lately disappeared from his country house in Wigtownshire, and who, there is much reason to fear, has been drowned. End quote. I wonder if by chance there was any other human eye but mine which traced the connection between these paragraphs. I never showed them to my wife or to Mordaunt, and they will only know of their existence when they read these pages. I don't know that there is any other point which needs clearing up, 
the intelligent reader will have already seen the reasons for the general's fear of dark faces of wandering men not knowing how his pursuers might come after him and of visitors from the same cause and because his hateful bell was liable to sound at all times his broken sleep led him to wander about the house at night and the lamps which he burnt at every room were no doubt to prevent his imagination from peopling the darkness with terrors lastly his elaborate precautions were as he has himself explained rather the result of a feverish desire to do something than in the expectation that he could really ward off his fate science will tell you that there are no such powers as those claimed by the eastern mystics i john fothergill west can confidently answer that science is wrong for what is science science is the consensus of opinion of scientific men and history has shown that it is slow to accept the truth science sneered at newton for twenty years science proved mathematically that an iron ship could not swim and science declared that a steamship could not cross the atlantic like goethe's mephistopheles our wise professor's fort is stets verneinen thomas didymus is to use his own jargon his prototype let him learn that if he will but cease to believe in the infallibility of his own methods and will look to the east from which all great movements come he will find there a school of philosophers and of savants who working on different lines from his own are many thousand years ahead of him in all the essentials of knowledge end of chapter sixteen end of the mystery of clumber by sir arthur conan doyle